Go ahead and find Genesis 3 with me. Genesis 3. As advertised, welcome to our monthly Q&A night. <clears throat> One question, and uh, so let's jump into it. Can you comment on the phenomenon in the Bible of husbands being led by their wives? You're having an issue with the uh, the T loop is I don't think is working right now. There were some yeah, there were some issues with that. So I don't know what to tell you, Brother Amerson. I don't know what I'll i I'll try to talk a little louder if I can. Yeah. <clears throat> Paul's gonna go monkey with it. All right, so let's get to the question. Can you comment on the phenomenon in the Bible of husbands being led by their wives? So, a few things. Uh, this is a different kind of question. It's, uh, it's really not a question. Uh, it's, it's an observation, a good one, with a request sort of that I comment on this observation. Now, under di- different circumstances, I might not have answered a question like this. It, you know, if I didn't think that the observation that I'm supposed to comment on was very helpful or insightful... I probably wouldn't have done it. You know, someone says, I noticed the Bible has a lot of words. Can you comment? Uh, that's, we're not going to do that on Q&A night. But this is a very good observation, an, an insight. And the question even came with some examples in the Bible that we're about to look at. But the questioner noticed this trend and wanted me to comment on this trend. So we're going to do that. We're going to go through some passages, see what's happening with this question, and then at the end, put together some points for home. So... Let's notice the first instance of this in your Bible where Adam is led by Eve. Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You know the story? The initiator of this action here is the serpent, the crafty serpent, who comes to Eve and calls into question the command God had given back in chapter 2 and verse 16. And he does it in some subtle and crafty ways that we're not going to explore right now. But what he does is he plays up the restrictiveness of God in this question. He downplays the good providence of God. And he recasts God as a good provider into sort of a distant, cruel taskmaster who's just trying to keep you down. And Eve is deceived in the beginning of verse 6, and she eats the fruit. In the end of verse 6, she gives to her husband, Adam, who also eats. And immediately in the story, it's obvious both to the reader and to the characters that something has changed, that a deception has been, has been done. There is an immediate awareness of wrongdoing and shame in verse 7, um, where they suddenly recognize they have <clears throat> something to be ashamed of. Or, or I came across this a while back. But this is a description of what, of what happened when they ate the fruit. They sought to be shrewd only to find out they were nude. That's what happens here. 
Well, beginning in verse 8, God interrogates them. He asks Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 11. And in an effort to lessen his own guilt, Adam alienates himself both from his wife and from God. He basically says, you know, actually the woman was the one who gave me the fruit. And then he says, God, and you were the one who gave me the woman. So I'm sort of doubly removed. I'm two steps removed from fault here. It's her fault and then it's kind of your fault. God then turns to Eve in verse 13. What is, that you have, what is this that you have done? And she answers, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Her answer is very straightforward and truthful. Well, in verse 14 beginning, God pronounces consequences on all parties involved in this sin. First the serpent, then Eve, and finally Adam. This is all precursor to get to the important line that the question is really getting at. When God turns to Adam to pronounce the consequences he will endure for his sin, God God first identifies to Adam exactly what his sins were. And it's not just that he ate the fruit and broke that command. He gets to that. But that's not the first thing he says, Adam, this is your sin. This is Adam's first sin, verse 17. Genesis 3 and verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and eaten of the tree which I commanded you. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. So the woman's sin was in listening to the serpent instead of God. Man's sin was listening to his wife instead of God. That's what God says. What God is stressing here is that Adam's essential failure was that of leadership. A failure of leadership. Obeying his wife rather than God... That was Adam's fundamental mistake. Really, Adam sinned twice when he ate the fruit. Or at least we could say he broke two commands or he failed in two ways. He failed to obey God's word about the fruit, of course, but he also failed to be the leader God made him to be. He listened to the voice of his wife instead of leading her, instead of listening to the voice of God. And so, to put it another way, Eve sinned because she was deceived. Adam sinned because he was derelict. He was derelict in his duty. So this is the first instance in in your Bible of this phenomenon, when a husband is led by his wife. It's a part of the first sin. Well, let's go to a second example, and that is that of uh, Abram and Sarai. This is Genesis 16. Genesis 16. So God made Abram a promise uh, of descendants in Genesis 12, that they would be so numerous they would outnumber the stars. Well, since Genesis 12, the story of Abraham has sort of been chugging along. Years are passing with each chapter. And as the years go by, still no kids. And at a certain point, Sarai has an idea that she thinks will help along these promises of God. This is Genesis 16 and verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children, obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. I don't think I need to convince you that this was a bad idea. 
Uh, we know it's bad because God will come back after this and reiterate to Abram that the child of promise will come from Sarah, not Hagar. We also know it's bad because the fallout from these events will be a disaster. The relationship between Sarah and Hagar deteriorates very quickly. Sarah sours on her and runs her out of the camp, and Hagar's in a desperate situation now. The narrator is telling us it's bad while it's happening. Pick up on this. He keeps calling in this story. He keeps insisting that Sarah is Abram's wife, verse 1. She's Abram's wife. He makes sure we know who Sarah is in relation to Abram. And in verse 3, notice the narrator says, remember who Abraham is. Sarah's husband. So Abram and Sarah are trying to help along one of God's covenants, the promises of a seed. They're trying to help along one covenant by breaking another covenant, that of marriage. Right? So there's two covenants. Say, well, we've got to help this along, and if we have to break this one to help this one, then we'll do that. To which God says, that's not the way my covenants work. So, notice, Sarah initiates this chain of events. It's her idea in verse 1. But do you notice what Abram's mistake is? Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, the end of verse 2. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Does that sound familiar to you? The phrase, listen to the voice of, that's identical to Genesis 3.17, what Adam did to Eve. In both stories, a husband who listens to the voice of his wife and disaster follows. Now, it becomes more obvious that this similar language isn't coincidental when you read verse 3 of this, of this uh, chapter and notice it contains another identical sequence of nouns and verbs to Genesis 3 and verse 6. So this is Genesis 16.3, just the major, the generic nouns and verbs. Wife took, gave, husband. That's the sequence of nouns and verbs. The wife took something and she gave it to her husband. Compare that to Genesis 3 and verse 6. Woman or wife took, gave to her husband. It's the same sentence with just different names in there, right? So the wife is different, the husband is different, and what's given is different, but the sequence of nouns and verbs is exactly the same. Eve took the fruit and gave to her husband. Sarah took Hagar and gave to her husband. In both stories, the wife takes the initiative. In both stories, the recipient of the quote-unquote gift is the husband who accepts without question. In both stories, the consequences for the sequence of events will last generations. In Genesis 3, it's a fallen world. And in Genesis 16, it will be never-ending antagonism between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. I'll read you what one commentator said of, of this story of Sarah comparing it to Genesis 3. It's clear from the outset that the narrator does not endorse Sarah's schemes. Her first words blame her creator for her predicament in verse 2, suggesting she is in her own way going, uh, going to sort out God's mistakes. Then, in the deliberate echoes of Genesis 3, Abram listening to his wife, Sarah taking and giving to her husband, these Genesis 3 phrases, the narrator suggests we are witnessing a rerun of the fall. I, uh, I once heard a lesson where verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, this was used as a positive example of how husbands should listen to their wives and have good communication and stuff like that. Husbands should communicate well with their wives and listen to what they say, but this ain't the passage to make that point. That's not what this is saying. Sarah's sin was in being impatient with the promise of God. Abram joined her in that sin. He committed that same sin 
But he committed another sin on top of that one, just like Adam. His failure was double. He listened to the voice of his wife instead of the voice of God. The author wants us to think of these two stories together. Well, that brings us to another, another example of this, <clears throat> and that is Solomon, who is led by his wives. Not just one of them, but lots of them. First Kings 11. Solomon is, uh, is paradoxically noted for two things, two opposite things. Number one, his great wisdom, and number two, his great foolishness. When you read the Proverbs that Solomon wrote and collected, many of them note, uh, take note of in parallel, a wise man and a fool. It, within the same proverb, a dozen words, you'll have something about the wise man and something about the fool. And Solomon often serves as an example of both of them at the same time. He got his wisdom, and then he acted foolishly. Solomon actually sort of got his wisdom and foolishness backward. Usually we're foolish in our younger years, and we begin to mature into wisdom as we get older. Solomon did it the other way around. He started with the wisdom, and then he started acting foolishly. Well, his story as told in the book of Kings is pretty decisive about one of the major sources of his turn from wisdom to folly. 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, For surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the the abomination of the Ammonites, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Verse 8, And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So you have the marriages in verse 1. We are reminded of the command... He is explicitly breaking in verse 2. And then the reason God made that command in verse 2 becomes obvious in verses 3 through 8. You know, when you see the idolatrous gods Solomon goes after beginning in verse 5, you can draw a line back to his wives in verse 1 for each one. Right? So in verse 5, he's worshiping a goddess of the Sidonians. Well, verse 1, you have wives from Sidon. You have the god of the Ammonites in verse 5. Well, back in verse 1, what do we have? A wife from Ammon in verse 1, and so on. Solomon's sin here is twofold. Yes, he's building idols' temples. This is a huge sin. But it was also, well, we've got threefold at least. It's building the temples, yes, but first it was marrying women he shouldn't have married, but then it was also listening to the voice of these women he shouldn't have married. There's a, there's a statement earlier in 1 Kings, in 1 Kings 3, that says Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. That was his earlier statement of his faithfulness. He loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. But 1 Kings 11 says Solomon also loved foreign women. And as a result, he stopped walking in those statutes he used to walk in. Solomon's loves were divided. 
And eventually it became clear he loved his foreign wives more than he loved God. And this is evidenced by the fact that he listened to their voices instead of the voice of God. And so it's one of the core downfalls of Solomon. He's led by his wives. Two more examples. Next one is Ahab, who was led by Jezebel. This is 1 Kings 16. So in Solomon's case, I think it's the story of a good man who's influenced toward evil through the influence of his wives. Solomon's trajectory is good man becomes evil through the influence of his wives. In Ahab's case, it's a bad man who's influenced toward even more evil through the influence of his wife. And so Solomon is a good man who becomes evil. Ahab's a bad man who becomes worse. And this becomes clear even as we're introduced to him. 1 Kings 16 and verse 29. 1629. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were with him, who were before him, rather. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so Ahab's reign here is summarized as being evil, but notice the cherry on top. As if it had been a light thing just to do this. Verse 31 says he goes off and he marries the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, whose name happens to have the god Baal in it. He marries the daughter of that king, who turns his heart even more to Baal, and to Baal's female counterpart, Asherah. The next few chapters of 1 Kings illustrate this summary we've just read many times over. After God's prophet Elijah humiliates the prophets of Baal and bears witness to the true God in this dark time, it's Jezebel in chapter 19 who sends men after Elijah to kill him. Remember, Baal is her precious God. And so here's this prophet who shows that Yahweh is the true God and she's not going to have that. It's Jezebel who initiates that, that um, tries to uh, assassinate Elijah. And then later in chapter 21... When Ahab is, is sort of bummed out that a man named Naboth won't sell some prime real estate that he really wanted, it's Jezebel who hatches a conspiracy to kill Naboth and to take his vineyard. It's Jezebel who initiates that. This is chapter 21 and verse 25. King's final summary of Ahab's reign credits once again Jezebel with being the inciter of much of the evil that characterized Ahab's reign. This is 1 Kings 21 and verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So Ahab's story is of a bad man who's led by a bad wife to become even worse. One more New Testament story. This is Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We have here the story of Herod in Herodias. One more story here, and then we'll uh, try to tie some of this together. This is Mark 6 and verse 18. 
Mark 6, verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and, asked, and said to her mother, For what should I ask? She said, For the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and, and, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with others to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. So let me start by setting the scene in this royal house. Verse 17 hits at some of this, but let me just say everything about this family dynamic in the Herodian dynasty is, is gross and mixed up and sordid. It's also confusing because almost everyone in this family is named Herod, uh, so it's hard to keep it straight. But Herod the Great is sort of the patriarch here. Uh, he had several sons by a number of different women. One of his sons was named Antipas, He's the King Herod in the story. Another son he had was named Aristobulus. And Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. Okay, so we've got two sons, Antipas and Aristobulus. Another son, yet another son was named Philip. And Philip was married to his niece, Herodias. Right? So that's his niece. He married his niece. They had a daughter named Salome. But then... Herodias, the wife, left Philip um, and married his brother, her uncle, Antipas. All right? Keeping this straight, it's hard. This is scandalous. This, all of this is scandalous and gross for a number of reasons. In the first place, I mean, there's just, you know, there's adultery, there's, there's incest. Um, the law of Moses specifically prohibits marriage to a brother's wife as long as the brother's living. I mean, it's just, uh, it's dozens of uh, sins piled up on top of another. Well, this is sort of the ruling the ruling governor of the land, and along comes John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's mission was to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom by calling men to repent of their sins and get ready. And no one was exempt from hearing this message, not even the royal house. And so he told Herod what Herod needed to hear, which was his marriage to Herodias was not lawful, verse 18. And it's interesting, Herod and Herodias here, the husband and wife, the adulterous husband and wife, have very different reactions to John the Baptist. In verse 19, Herodias' reaction is she, she sort of seethes at John. She doesn't have the authority to execute him, but she does have enough sway to have him imprisoned, which she does. Verse 17 said that Herod imprisoned John for the sake of Herodias. And while John is in prison, Herodias is waiting for opportunity to do even more than imprison him. That's Herodias. On the other hand, you have Herod in verse 20. Herod's emotions, his reaction toward John the Baptist is, is more complex. On the one hand, we're told he regards John as, as a righteous and holy man. 
But then at the same time, that righteous and holy man is telling you you're unlawfully married and inviting God's judgment on yourself and on your, on your land. Right? So there's that. And yet it's, it says he heard him gladly. So this is all, this is all very complex. And then enter in, into this equation the pressure of his wife, Herodias, to kill John. But then there's Herod's desire to keep him safe and his regard for John in some way. It seems to me the imprisonment is sort of Herod's way of compromising, his way of appeasing his angry wife and maybe even a measure to protect John. So Herod is both glad to hear a man of God, but troubled by hearing that man of, what that man of God has to say. He, to put it another way, he's glad to hear John's preaching, but he's too weak to listen to it, to, to abide by it. Let me just pause here. Does this dynamic sound at all familiar? So we've got, first of all, a weak king. We've got a scheming queen. And we've got a prophet that the queen wants dead. This is just Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah a few centuries later with the names change. That's exactly what this dynamic is. So we've got a begrudging Herodias and a perplexed Herod, but Herodias is smarter than Herod. And so at a banquet for Herod's birthday, Herodias sends in her young daughter, Salome, to dance for these Galilean rulers and movers and shakers. Again, if you're keeping track, Salome's Herod's great niece. Verse 22 delicately describes what's probably a, a lascivious and immodest performance for a crowd of drunken men. Herod is so pleased by the performance, he vows to give her practically whatever she wants. And so Salome asks her mastermind, Mother Herodias, what to ask for, and Herodias finally gets what she wants in verse 25, John the Baptist's head on a platter. Herod is another in a long list of men who listens to the voice of his wife. He comes off in the story not as scheming. He comes off in the story as weak. In this story, he's clay in his wife's hands. And when she wants something, she finds a way to have her voice heard. And he listens to it. So, the person who asked this question keenly noticed this trend in Scripture. It's a very good observation. There's story after story in the Bible of husbands listening to the voice of their wives, and these stories end in disaster. Many of these stories are intentionally evocative of one another, as we brought out. Adam and Abram listened to the voice of their wives. The dynamics between the pliable Ahab, the scheming Jezebel, and the suffering prophet Elijah are replayed exactly in this story. A pliable Herod, a scheming Herodias, and a suffering prophet, John the Baptist. Now, I do think we need to make a distinction in these stories. There's really two categories of stories here. The stories of Sarah and Eve stand apart from the stories of Herodias, Jezebel, and Solomon's wives. Just like their husbands, Sarah and Eve are exemplars in the biblical story. They're, they're people God uses to fulfill his promises. They're commended at times in the New Testament. Their sins, their failings are momentary failures that are repented of and redeemed. This is unlike the other stories, like Jezebel and Herodias. These, these stories are about women who have no redeeming qualities in the stories, and their stories end without any redemption whatsoever. And, and yet, I think that distinction makes the point even sharper. Let's take the best-case scenario. Let's take the exemplary women, Sarah and Eve. Of course, to listen to the voice of Jezebel, that's going to be a disaster. That's obvious. Ahab shouldn't have married her in the first place. But Adam should have married Eve, right? She was literally made for him. He didn't have any other choice. Adam should have married Eve. Sarah is the mother of God's people. Abram should have married Sarah. 
But even in these best of circumstances, with these good women, when the wife is not an evil schemer like Jezebel, but godly women who honestly are deceived like Eve or simply impatient with God's promises like Sarah, even in these best of circumstances, when the husband listens to the voice of his wife instead of the voice of God, it results in disaster. That's what happens in the best of these stories. The sin of these men, it's, it's not that they simply hear what their wives have to say. You understand what, what we say, what we mean when we say they listen to the voice of their wives. We're not talking about, oh, you're not, you know, when your wife talks immediately, you plug your ears. Don't do that. Communication is an essential part of marriage. We know this. The sin is to elevate the voice of their wives ahead of the voice of God. That's what happens. God told Adam, don't eat the fruit. Eve told Adam, actually, it's good to eat the fruit. And Adam listened to the voice of Eve instead of the voice of God. God told Abram he would have a child through Sarah. Sarah wasn't so sure and developed another plan. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah instead of the voice of God. That's the sin. So, with this uh, insightful trend before us, let me make two final points for home, one for husbands and one for wives. Number one, a word for husbands. Learn to follow God and not your wife. Learn to follow God, not your wife. One thing I've noticed, I've learned, if, if you identify a trend in human behavior in Scripture that repeats over and over again throughout the centuries, then that thing, that behavior, that tendency has not gone away. Human nature has not changed one bit since then. Mankind has not progressed past pride or lust or greed or anger or any other sin. And neither have we progressed past the phenomenon of husbands who take their cues from their wife instead of from God. It's a trend in Scripture, and it didn't stop the day the New Testament was finished being written. It's a part of the very first sin of human history that recurs throughout your Bible. Did it stop happening in the year 101 A.D.? Now, perhaps as we went through these stories of wife-led husbands, maybe you thought of a couple you know that works this way. Maybe you identified something that's popped up in your own marriage at one point, a story like these. Sometimes we have jokes about this, you know, she's the one who wears the pants in the family and that sort of thing. We know this, we know this trope. We just need to call that what it is. One of a few things are happening when that happens. One, it's a failure of the husband to lead. Two, it's a usurpation of the wife. Or three, usually it's some of both. What is God's vision for husbands? The answer is to lead with love. Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. If you keep reading that, we're not going to go through that whole section. But he elaborates on what it is to lead with love, to lead in a Christ-like way. But godly leadership is at the core of authentic and scriptural manhood. But here's the, the crucial question when we talk about leadership. What are we leading our wives and our families toward? What is it? Are we leading them to follow us, simply to follow us? The answer is no. We are leading our family to follow God. We should think, husbands, we should think of our leadership in the same way that a middle manager or a lieutenant is a leader. Our leadership is not do what I say. That's not our leadership. Neither is our leadership 
I do what you say, wife. Neither of those is the pattern. The pattern of leadership is we do what the one in charge of me says. You don't do what I say, and I don't do what you say. We do what he says, and I lead you to do what he says. 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So, husbands, our charge is not to do the bidding of your wife. You're not being a good husband if you simply do whatever she wants at every moment of the day. That's not what godly leadership is. It's to love our wives as we do the bidding of Christ. Happiness and harmony in the home is not achieved by simply trying to appease my wife's every whim. It's in following God first and then leading the rest of my family to do the same. The lesson for husbands is learn to follow God, not your wife. Second, a word for wives. Lead your husband to follow God, not you. Uh, turn with me to one more passage, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. This, uh, this section of verses is written specifically to women whose husbands are not following the Lord. And in, the, in that case, they're not following the Lord. They're almost certainly not being the sorts of leaders they should be. Where we, you know, the godly leader says, follow me as I follow Christ. If someone's not following Christ, they're not going to really be the sort of leader they ought to be. So here, here's a woman who's married to a man who's not doing this, who's not listening to this question and answer, who's not going to do, do what these verses say. And the question Peter asks is, what then? What changes? First Peter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. God's plan for marriage is a beautiful thing. When a marriage is modeled after Christ and the church, as Ephesians 5 puts so well, that sort of marriage is beautiful and healthy and life-giving for everyone. But Peter here asks, what about when a woman is married to a man who does not obey the word? If my husband isn't a Christian, do I still look to him as the head? And Peter's answer basically is yes. We understand the ideal of marriage is purely beautiful and wonderful, but at the same time, none of our marriages lives up to that ideal. But the fact that none of our marriages lives up to the ideal doesn't mean we should stop pursuing the ideal. A husband may not be following God, and if he's not following God, he's not going to be very good at leading his family to follow God. But Peter says, hope is not lost. They may be one without even a word through his wife's conduct, through her inner beauty, through her persistent godliness. Even in an unbalanced marriage with a husband who has failed to lead, wives are urged not to lose hope or to abandon the pursuit of God's ideal for marriage. That's what's happening here. Even in these less than ideal circumstances, he doesn't say, wife, just abandon the, the pursuit of the godly marriage. It's not going to happen for you. He says, no. 
He doesn't advise a wife, okay, you're going to have to step up and be the husband in this relationship. A wife is not advised to act like a husband. She is told here to, in a sense, lead her husband, not to follow her, but to follow God. And so, and so, in so doing, learning to follow God, learning to lead his family. Now, one more thing to notice here. If we keep reading in verse 5, a name we've talked about pops up again, verse 5. So in view of this sort of woman, this godly woman, verse 5, he says, This is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is a very interesting development considering what we just studied. You know, does Peter, is he unaware of Genesis 16 when Sarah misleads Abraham and he does... He listens to her voice. And the answer is no. Because we know Abram, he had his list of sins. We could go through those. They're more lengthy than Sarah's. But just as Abraham isn't, isn't defined by his sins, neither is Sarah. The big arc of Sarah's life is one of holiness, it's wifeliness, it's godly submission to the godly leadership of her husband. Sarah is with Abraham every step of the way. The tests of faith Abraham struggled with, Sarah struggled with. The itinerant, tent-dwelling life he embarked on, she also embarked on. She is a helpmate to her husband her entire life. She made a covenant with her husband, and she kept it in the course of all of these events and all of the heartbreak, all the questions. The story arc of her life is leading her husband to follow God and not her. So, I'd like to thank the questioner for the keen observation here. And I think this has led us into a helpful study of God's Word. Um, it is a much-needed teaching in marriages today. When marriages become centered on each other instead of centered on God, some deeply unhealthy dynamics begin to develop. We have forgotten what marriage is in that case. Sometimes, this can go wrong in, in different ways. Sometimes... It's the husband who leads his wife to simply follow his own desires. And the word for that is patriarchal tyranny, right? That's how marriages can go wrong sometimes. A husband leads his wife without reference to God, leads her in what I want. But other times, it's the husband who is led by his wife to follow her desires, which is not a fix of patriarchal tyranny. That's simply matriarchal tyranny. And that's not a fix of the other. That's two sides of the day. That's a ditch on this side and a ditch on this side. The ideal marriage is one in which husband and wife enter into a sacred and unbreakable covenant before God. And they live out their marriage in honor of the God who joined them together. The husband leads his wife and his family to follow God with him. And that is the positive teaching that, drive, that derives from these stories we've talked about. So thanks for being here. Thanks for the question. Um, always feel free to get those to me, and I will always promise to do my best, not to answer them perfectly, but do my best to answer them. Maybe there's someone here that realizes you have not been following God. Maybe you've not been the sort of leader you ought to be in your position. You've not been the husband or wife you ought to have been. Maybe just your life has not conformed to the will of God. But you want to repent. You want to begin to follow him again. We always stand ready to help you, to pray for you, to do whatever we can. Right now as we stand and sing.